So tonight's program is on Greek immigrant confectioners in central Illinois. Our, our guest speaker tonight is Anne Flesser Beck. Her book, if you get a hold of it, is really quite something, especially when you consider there's like a hundred pages of notes related to her topic. I I was so impressed when I saw that. I, I've gone to so many programs where the guy says, well, if you want to see my bibliography or whatever, what I did with my book, go to my website. No, it's in the book. And that's, I hate to say this day and age, that's very impressive. Um, anyway, Thank she's you. from Tuscola. It's a region also of Arthur and, oh gosh, there's one other community, but Tuscola is famous for the Brune Corn Festival. And of okay. course it, Excuse me? Arcola. Arcola. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Brew Corn. That's you know okay. what? I kind of, in my mind, I know you, it's all individual communities, but I got them all kind of married in my head. And you know what? People do it. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not alone. But I'm not going to give much of an introduction because I'm afraid whatever I say, I'm going to interrupt her um, presentation. So, Anne, I'm turning it over to you. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to speak tonight with you. And I, I do encourage um, questions. Uh, this is uh, my first Zoom talk about the book Sweet Greeks. Uh, so I thought I would talk a little bit. Um, I was asked um, by uh, Kathy to talk about what do I know? So I know so much. Uh in the process of researching the book, uh, I talked to so many lovely, lovely uh, second and third generation um, Greeks in central Illinois. So I'm going to just kind of give you a little bit of background about how this all got started. Um, I'm behind me with my uh, presentation is it literally the inside of our soda fountain, which is Fluster's Candy Kitchen. My sister um, is on the, if you can see the PowerPoint, we were younger then, um, 16 years ago when we reopened. My grandfather uh, came to this country in 1901 from Pigidakia, which is in the Peloponnese. And he is, was the uh, nephew of a man who came over originally from that area and was in Champaign-Urbana. And he and a partner uh, ended up getting another place in Tuscola, Illinois, which is literally 25 miles down the road, the railroad actually at the time from Champaign-Urbana, which uh, at the time was hosting uh, the University of Illinois. So they went to Tuscola and opened up a candy kitchen and my grandfather came over from Pigadakia in 1901 and went to Chicago and then came down to Tuscola and worked as an apprentice with uh, two gentlemen, Mr. Vakey and Mr. Viner. And my grandfather was the nephew of Mr. Viner. And he decided, okay, I can do this. And they said, if you would like to buy the business, it will cost $500. And so my grandfather said, all right. And he went west and worked on the railroad and earned about $1.50 a day and worked approximately, according to my uncle, a year and a half, year or so, 
came back and bought the business. So in 1904, uh, Flesser's Candy Kitchen or the Tuscola Candy Kitchen uh, became his. And he then brought his two brothers over and the three of them worked in our store. This is, these pictures you see here are uh, pretty much the way the store kind of used to look like. The floor is original. Um, the booths are original. My brother actually made the candy cases, but the backboard is original from uh, the 1900s. The lovely lights that are over each booth are original. So we're very lucky that we could refurbish and reopen, which is a whole other story. But anyway, my sister and I gave up uh, kind of lucrative careers to go back and do the candy business. We don't know what possessed us, but I was back in the area and drove by this empty building in Tuscola that said for sale. And I thought, okay, interesting. And I got a bottle of wine and went over to my sister's and my mother was there. My father had passed away. And I said, what would be the most outrageous thing you could think about? And my mother leaned over and said, you want to buy the store, don't you? And my sister said, oh, that would be great. So uh, that was it. We went out and obtained grants and loans. It took a year and a half to renovate the space. Uh, we had to gut it because except for the floor, our floor is original but it would have been abandoned and empty for 30 years. Uh, so we discovered the original soda fountain and fixtures were in a warehouse. That was another catalyst for us to move forward. And so we um, worked very hard to rebuild our business. And in 2004, we reopened. Um, and we've been working really, really hard ever since. So, there's where we are. We're one of the few working soda fountains left in the country, which uh, if I have time, I'll talk about later. So as I was renovating the store, I had begun a PhD program at the University of Illinois, and I had a dissertation topic in mind of working with settlement houses and then, you know, kind of languish because I don't know those of you who have been in business, it's just a lot of work and a lot of time. And however, these second generation Greeks kept coming in or people from the small towns around uh, Tuscola, and we're right in the middle of the state. We are literally, as I mentioned, 25 miles south of Champaign-Urbana. We're on the east central part of the state. The second generation Greeks would come in or people from different towns around, they say, oh, you know, there was a, a candy kitchen in Villa Grove, Illinois. There was, boy, a candy kitchen in, in Pena. Um, and then what I thought as people kept coming in with these stories is, well, maybe there is a real story there. And I thought no one had ever really talked about how the Greeks, first generation Greeks came over um, to America and ended up in these small little towns, you know, because my grandfather and his two brothers, they were it. 
And I never, as a child growing up or even as a teenager, inquired about it. I just grew up there and thought, well, this was life and they've been there forever. And I wasn't really that interested, but I began to be interested. So I put the word out to the uh, Greek Orthodox Church in Champaign. And I said, if there are any uh, second, third generation Greeks out there who had confectionaries, uh, please come and see me. I'd like to see if there is enough for a story there. So they came, they brought their documents, they brought their ship manifest, they brought their pictures. And the one man who kind of pushed me over the edge was Mr. Samaras, um, who brought in a folder uh, the story of his father who had gone to Champaign and then to Hoopston, Illinois. And he came and had lunch and we sat down and went through his folder with his pictures and articles from the newspaper. And he said, thank you so much for telling my father's story. And I, I, I'm tearing up. I still tear up. And that was it for me. So I thought I have to do this. So I went to my advisor and I said, I, I would like to change my topic. I think I have a really good research project. And he said, go for it. So I did. So I, I completed my dissertation. Uh, it was really long. The whole emphasis of it is on the rural distribution of the first generation Greek confectioners. There's a lot written and you all are in Chicago. There's a lot written about the Chicago uh, Greek experience. Uh, Theodore Salutos is one of the premier historians and if you haven't read his stories about the Greeks, I would encourage you to do so. Charles Moscos, another one. Um, but I wrote about the rural experience and to think about as an immigrant with little English and little education, coming to a small town and opening up a business uh, and succeeding is pretty much phenomenal. A lot of the threads of this immigration story are stories that are told today, uh, stories that we are revisiting today in regard to immigration. So basically, I just kind of have up for you uh, a lovely picture of the cover. This is the uh, Kutuchkan uh, in Springfield. And I have gotten the privilege to talk with their whole family, second and third generations. Um, they are no longer in the confectionery business, but um, I did my research from the east end of central Illinois all the way over to Springfield and uh, got to tell the story of the small towns and then the, the small cities. So I have um, a lot of fundamental and foundational Greek history about why the, did the Greeks come to America in the first place? Uh, how did they become um, Americanized? There is a lovely uh, true chapter on the Ku Klux Klan, which my grandfather uh, had personal relationships with, and a lot of the Greeks did in these small towns in central Illinois. And I then at the end talk about uh, the great stories of the small town Greeks and the small town and the small city Greeks. So that's kind of how the, the book is set up. And this is my grandfather's story. So I have been really lucky uh, to be able to weave his story through the whole book as kind of the model story of 
uh, a guy who came over uh, as a young man and uh, working really hard and becoming extremely successful. My grandfather not only had a very thriving business in a small town, he he bought farmland during the depression, paid cash for it. He raised uh, five children out of eight. Uh, three of them died. His wife, Sophia, um, was in arranged marriage, as many were. She was from Danville, Illinois, and she had uh, been born in Boston and, and, excuse me, came to the Midwest. Uh, she was very, very pretty. That's the only picture we have of her. She died in childbirth. And uh, my grandfather never remarried. So he not only had a business, but raised his children by himself. And uh, that was quite, quite extraordinary. Most of the Greeks uh, came to the United States uh, during the later half of the 1800s. And they came from the Peloponnese. And this is my grandfather's village, Pigadakia. A lot of the villages were just up in the hills. Uh, they were very, very tiny. I've been asked often, uh, did your grandfather make candy in Greece? And no, he was a, a goat farmer. Um, and at the time, Greece had been through just so much. Um, you know, the, the country as a whole was, was financially bankrupt. They had been through wars. Um, the they had tried to produce crops that would be successful. Uh, for instance, they grew currants because in France the current crop had died and France couldn't make wine. So the Greeks decided we'll do that. So they chopped down their olive trees and grew currants. And then France figured out how to replenish their stock and they replenished their wine. And so they didn't need the Greeks anymore. So those crops became um, worthless. The government uh, started parceling out the land in, in such small plots that people literally could not feed their families. And so at the time as well in America and different uh, countries, the the call to come to America and, and make money was very, very loud. Uh, and so what happened was mostly Greek males left their small villages for lots of reasons. They didn't want to, again, another reason they didn't want to go into the army to be conscripted. And that was always my grandfather's story. He didn't want to go fight the Turks. Um, so they jumped on um, the ships and here's basically where most of them came from. Uh, so you can see that it's outside of, anyway, um, so we're in the southern part of the country of Greece, and my grandfather always said he was a Spartan, and so a lot of these tiny, tiny villages in the middle, in the mountains, literally, um, these are folks who came to the, the uh, coast, and they basically left mostly from Petras, so you see here a picture of the males for the most part uh, leaving the country. So a lot of them first came to New York, they came to Chicago, uh, some went to St. Louis, and I talk a lot about uh, Chicago and St. Louis. 
And for those of you from Chicago, uh, you know all of these. Um, if you don't, you you should. Uh, Margie's Candies, which is still in place. And of course, the Andes Mints. Uh, Demets, who made the famous turtles. Uh, the Picanola, you, you can call company. I'm not sure uh, if you're as familiar with them, but they started out in Chicago and they ended up in the Quad Cities. Um, I've had the real delight to talk with the third generation, fourth generation uh, family. And uh, my sister actually made pecan rolls because I guess the Picanola bar was like a pecan roll. And uh, we sent some out last Christmas and they really enjoyed those. So the Dove Bar, we all know that story, I think. Um, there are just a lot of great stories. And in Chicago, um, this is where, uh, as Theodore Saludo said, this was the Acropolis of the Greek confectioners. Um, there were two Greeks who came um, around the 1860s and learned to make candy. And they brought Greek Greek young Greek men over and taught them the trade. And they, uh, it is said they brought about a thousand Greeks over over time and taught them how to make candy. And those, those uh, young men kind of dispersed out into the whole country actually. But um, in Champaign or Urbana, uh, where I'm gonna go to my next uh, story, um, this is where the central Illinois Greeks uh, kind of first started. We have Mr. Viner and Mr. Bakey, uh, whom I referred to earlier. They came to Champaign-Urbana uh, late 1890s. Um, and Mr. Viner uh, had a push cart and he sold fruit and things. And Mr. Vakey came down from Chicago and they kind of hooked up. Now, Mr. Vakey is very interesting, actually went to Boston. He went to Boston to learn how to make candy because he decided, well, if we're going to do this, then let's do it right. And he, according to his son, um, with whom I interviewed before he died, um, Mr. Vakey learned to make candy and pretty much was kind of the Pied Piper of the confectioners in central Illinois, um, very much so. And Mr. Vakey learned to make basic, basic candy. And for those of you who love candy, there, there are kind of three or four basic things that we all use. My sister is the confectioner. I am the, the, the chocolatier. But we make caramel. We make a, a fondant. We make hard candy. Um, and Mr. Vakey learned how to do these things so that the Greeks in central Illinois uh, could learn, could come and he would teach them and not only that, help them get started in their business. But in Chicago, there were a lot of German confectioners. Um, there were other, you know, ways, Italian confectioners, there were ways to learn how to make candy. And the Greeks, I think that was their niche. It became their niche. The Italians uh, had fruit carts as well, but it seemed the Greeks were out there early. They would make some money. They might go out west on the railroad and, and get some cash come back. 
But candy was a way, an, an inexpensive way to start out because basically, and my sister does this still, and she always says, you know, we have a flame, we have a copper kettle, um, and that's all you need. And that didn't take a lot of space and it didn't take a lot of money. But you could start building your own business. And I think one of the interesting aspects about Greeks is they didn't come over here to go work in the factories. They came over and they started their own businesses. And you all know they morphed into diners and restaurants, but that's another story. So, so here we are. And at the same time in America, the advent of soda fountains, uh, which, which came about, and this was just an amazing phenomenon, right? The Chicago World's Fair. Um, originally, soda fountains started out as kind of medicinal places. You could go and get your soda water, and then they flavored it. And then we made ice cream, and we threw it into the soda water. And you can see these lovely, huge machines. There is still uh, in the north on the north end of Chicago, the American Soda Fountain Company run by Phil Shy and his sister. Um, my grandfather bought his first soda fountain from them, from their grandfather. And my sister and I, as you can see behind me, got our refurbished soda fountain from them when we reopened in 2004. And it was such a thrill to go there. But it's like, it's like this huge, huge building full of uh, soda fountain parts. I was overwhelmed. And I have to share this with you because after 16 years, I'm still not over it. We spent $25,000 uh, with grant money. I will say Illinois Department Economic, whatever that was at the time. Um, we wrote a grant and they paid for our soda fountain. But we had to go to Chicago and customize our ice cream freezer and our spigots and all of that so that we could fit it into our marble bar, which original is original. So what a thrill that was. Um, as I said, I'm still not over how much it cost. But I, I just want to point out with this slide that the Greeks were so proud of their environment. Um, and I, you know, the store was, and we still call it the store, it is home away from home. It is our pride and joy. It is a way to um, publicly state that we are part of our town, that we are part of the business world, that we are part of the success of America. And I will just say that it was a very important thing for Greeks to have the best soda fountain that they could have. Um, and so there you go. Okay. And here is um, my. Uh, there's one question call. before you change yes. slides. What's the vessel on the right side of the counter? Um, I think that is, I don't know what that is. It might be a coffee urn, um, but I'm not sure, to be honest with you. The, the um, dispenser here. for the soda fountain is in the middle, but it looks like a coffee urn to me. So it, I'm not sure. That's okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay. All right. So anyway, this is uh, my grandfather's original and he actually, there was a fire. And so that's when he started to renovate, but that's my great uncle 
one of my grandfather's brothers. So you can see it was just a very beautiful, beautiful place. And my grandfather uh, was there in 1904. So this is 1913. And, um, and that's our original bar, not the one that we have today. And I'm sorry, my husband's talking to me. Okay. So anyway, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. So here's, here's an interesting, I love this um, map. So back before primarily World War II, these were all of the Greek confectioners candy kitchens in central Illinois. So this is basically uh, around Bloomington and then down almost to Southern Illinois and all the way across the state. There were, oh, I, I went to over 40 uh, of them. I didn't, I did not uh, explore all of Southern Illinois, um, but you can see that every little town in central Illinois had a candy kitchen. And I've had uh, the privilege even lately, Jim, I think it's Payless who emailed me this, I got his email this morning, um, said that his grandfather had a confectionery in downstate New York. And I just want to point out that this kind of story has rep been replicated across the country. You know, there are candy kitchen histories all over the country. And, you know, if you could throw out, you know, in any small town in America, probably a Greek person, male, started a candy kitchen um, in the small town. So there were a lot of them. There are, there's one left that would be ours. Yeah. Um, and that's a very interesting um, part of the, the research as well. What happened to the candy stores? Um, <laughs> I, I will, I'll share that with you. So part of, you know, the question of how did the Greeks learn to make candy if they, if they weren't confectioners in Greece, right? They were farmers. How did they learn how to make candy? Well, it was, you know, person to person. Mr. Vakey obviously went to Boston and went to cooking school and, and culinary school, and he learned to be a confectioner. Uh, we also have Mr. Rigby, and my sister and I still use Mr. Rigby. He came out with Rigby's Reliable Candy Teacher uh, in 1897, around then, and there have been many editions since. One of the lovely things about Mr. Rigby's book, uh, and it, you can get copies of this uh, online, is that not only did he have recipes for candy, he had recipes for soda fountain, ice cream. Uh, he would talk about how to set up your business how to decorate your windows, because you have to understand these small towns and our stores like this. We have huge front windows. They're, you know, they're like, you can, they're like 10 feet, 12 feet tall. Uh, and the buildings are narrow. And a lot of these buildings, um, you know, you just had you draw people in to come in and try out your product, come in and have a Coca-Cola, chocolate soda. Uh, Mr. Rigby would, would tell you how to do that. And I think it was a really um, wonderful source for immigrants, particularly, to read and learn how to be successful. Now, I have to say that um, not everybody was successful. 
some people came, some of the Greeks came and they, they started their businesses. Some went back. Uh, Theodore Salutos uh, estimated that 40% of the Greek immigrants returned to their country, which is, which is pretty high. And they did it for lots of reasons. You know, they, they missed their country. They couldn't make enough money. Um, they had, uh, you know, somebody they wanted to marry back in Greece. They just, you know, didn't uh, feel like it was the place for them. I have to say unequivocally that to come to a small town as a single male uh, and settle and open up a business was pretty amazing. There was no, except for like in Champaign-Urbana, a little bit in Danville, Springfield, uh, Decatur, you know, there were small Greek communities. Uh, those places had churches, but in a lot of the small towns around, uh, my grandfather was it. You know, he had no uh, real connections unless Mr. Vakey jumped in his car and drove down and, and came to see my grandfather, which, uh, which did happen. But they were very isolated. And um, that was in that was a sad kind of aspect of it, and they they did survive. One of the thing I, I'm digressing here, so we'll come back to this education. One of the things that Greek the Greeks did though uh, in these small towns, my grandfather did that too. Uh, amazingly enough, was to join the Masons, um, and the Masons actually were affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan. So there's a little bit of irony there. Uh, but my grandfather joined the Masons in Tuscola, and that's where he said he learned English. And uh, he he went way up there in the ranks, um, and he was so um, thankful to the Masons for helping him learn English and become a successful business person that he bought the building uh, that now houses the Masons. And I haven't seen this, but evidently there's a big portrait of my grandfather in the building. And I'm not a Mason, so I've not been invited to go see it. But maybe someday I will. Anyway, um, Mr. Vakey came back to Champaign-Urbana from Boston. And he taught my grandfather to make candy. He taught Mike Polis in Arcola, Illinois, to make candy. He taught some of the Greeks in Decatur to make candy. He worked with the Greeks in Mattoon and Pena and Villa Grove and Paris, Illinois, and they learned to make candy from um, Mr. Bakey. Again, Mr. Rigby. Um, and then uh, Kathy had asked me about the Heath Bar, so I do have that story. So Mr. Rigby, uh, there is this, this recipe here, Old English Toffee. So, you know, I think basically toffee recipes are pretty pretty uh, simple. We make toffee. It's good. Um, But what happened in Robinson, Illinois, originally, there were two Greeks uh, who went there and they opened up a candy store and they made candy. And there was then the Heath family. And there was a Frenchman from Indiana whose father was a, a pastry chef. And The son uh, actually worked with the Heath family and we, I'm not sure, you know, nobody really knows where the Heath family came up with their recipe for the the 
the toffee bar. So there are all kinds of estimations. They could have pulled it out of Mr. Rigby. The French pastry chef son might have come up with that recipe. Another interesting fact with the confectioners is that they had salespeople running up and down the state on the railroad selling all of the, um, you know, marshmallow and all of the corn syrup and things that people needed to make candy. And so they would share recipes up and down the line. There could have been, you know, salesperson with, with the toffee recipe. So although some of the champagne people think perhaps Mr. Vicky made toffee first, we don't know. Um, but Mr. Heath, uh, took it and ran. And that was, that was, that was that. So anyway, um, so I don't know, I don't have a real good answer for how the Heath bar came about, but there are all kinds of, so interesting enough, here I am. This is what I do. I, <laughs> I dip candy by hand. Uh, I rolled, I rolled the fondant and I dip it by hand. And the interesting, uh, gender topic is that the Greek males made the candy and a lot of the Greek women dipped it. So my sister actually is the confectioner and I am the dipper. And uh, in this Mr. Rigby, he tells us how to, how to dip the candy and how to temper the chocolate and all of that good stuff. I actually learned from my mother who is not a Greek, um, but she married into the Greek family. So she became a dipper and she learned from a German lady. So I feel like I've had a good uh, education. I will say this, it is the hardest work I've ever done. And it is, um, it is kind of, you know, as they say now artisanal and we work very hard uh, to make our candy look nice. I say I'm really good at it now. I can make every cream the same size just by hand. And I think even if I went blind, I could still do it. So it took me about a year to get good at what I do. Uh, I ruined a lot of candy, but so. All right. I'm going to I'm going to end with this and then we can open it up for for questions. You can see there my sister's caramel uh, kettles. Those are my grandfather's kettles. Uh, so they're over 100 years old, which is very cool. And they, it is open flame. And uh, we have recipes that my grandfather passed down. My brother actually had them typed up. You can see here the ingredients. There are no directions with them. And uh, so my, my sister knows what to do uh, with this. I, I am not the candy maker, so don't ask me about how to make candy. But we have all of our recipes on um, very dirty now um, laminated pieces of paper, and she doesn't really even need to use them. But anyway, it's good to know sometimes when you're tired, you pull out the recipe. So, okay. Oh, and here we are, finished product. My husband is coaching me, which is great. So, yeah, we make this. These are caramel things that, that we make um, as many confectioners do but all of our ours are all homemade so they aren't uh they aren't machine made that you will see in a lot of confectionaries now so 
All right. I'd love to open it up to questions. Um, so have at it. By the way, if you don't mind, I'm going to make an addition to the Heath story. Okay, great. Because there was a, uh, some years ago, the um, Smithsonian had a uh, symposium on chocolate that I attended. And there was a military historian there. And he said Heath was one of those things that went into K-rations during World War II. Right. And that really put them on the map. Yep. Otherwise, they were, you know, a small town confectioner. They, the, the Heath family was also in the oil business down there. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and there was an article. There's actually a book about the Heath family. I haven't read the article that, but I read the Chicago Tribune had an article in the early 90s. And it was a family that was just at war with each other. Just. Yes. I mean, the, they would go, they would have these board meetings, and this one woman would complain about every time she went, she had to pay for her ice cream sundae or whatever she ordered. And somebody one day calculated how much it would have cost and handed her the money, and it never came up again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, I, have another, I have another story about World War II, and this is kind of inter well, an interesting um, a World War One as well. Uh, the troops were fed a certain kind of chocolate. They used a certain kind of chocolate. And uh, my dad used this chocolate because that's what, you know, because my dad was in World War II and he said, this is the chocolate we're using. And um, my sister and I don't use that chocolate because we don't like it. But I didn't understand why he was so adamant about it. But it was because this was the chocolate that went to the troops. And I didn't learn that until I was doing my research. And then that all made sense to me. So, but, but by the way, that was another thing that military historian touched. And he said the chocolate that was in actually the rations, I guess the, the, the Heath bar was something else, but right. they were actually intentionally made to not taste very good. Because it was yes. there to give a shot of energy at an important moment and not for casual eating. Yeah. Uh, I know there's several questions here, so I thought perhaps uh, we'll start maybe with Chuck. Yeah, I just wondered if you happen to have heard of a very small, I think it was small candy company in Chicago, uh, Flavor Candy, and they made a, a candy they, called Chicken Bones. <laughs> I just wondered if you had ever heard of them. What, what is yeah. this? They, they, made a, they made a candy called Chicken Bones. I've got a picture of it. <laughs> you I do not see. know that. I don't yeah. know that. Okay. I will, I, I will, I just, I'm going to write it down, though, and try to research that. Where? Yeah. So tell me uh, about it. Well, I don't know much about it, really, but I, I just know they were located in Chicago, and I think it was kind of a, a butterscotch kind of uh, flavor, and it looked, uh, I guess, like a chicken bone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. In Chicago, at one time, there were three to 4,000 confectionaries, and Greek confectionaries. So that's not including the Germans and, you know, the Italians. So that was quite a few. But after World War II, then that went down to three or four hundred. So pretty interesting. And I, I just want to touch on that a little bit um, because I think it's a, you know, 
there's been research on well, how did how did it just implode and and fall apart? Well, a lot of reasons. You know, after World War II, at, you know, the the second generation went to war. Uh, they came back and they had the GI Bill. Um, education to the Greeks is an extremely important. Um, just, you know, I can't tell you how, since I was two, I was drilled into my head, you know, you're going to college. And my mother, when, you know, my sister and I talked about uh, reopening the store, just absolutely, until the day she died, thought we had lost our minds. I did not raise you girls to go back into the candy business. You know, you went to college so you could become professional and, and you know, this is not a real life. And so I think there was a lot of uh, stigma attached to being a soda jerk. Um, I know a lot of second generation Greeks were not particularly proud of being Greek. Uh, and I have a whole chapter on the Ku Klux Klan and how, you know, and my grandfather had a cross burned across the street from the store. Uh, trying to run him out of town. My father, uh, a lot of times, was embarrassed about being the son of a Greek immigrant. Um, it was not a um, attribute of pride. And I, I start, you know, kind of the book off with the quote, you know, the third generation um, can kind of get past all of that. And it's okay to be ethnic again. And, you know, now we're not just slogging candy out the door and, and, and making ice cream. We, we are what is called artisanal, you know, so it's a little more sophisticated and um, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's interesting kind of thing to think about, but I, I think that after world war two, back to that, um, yeah, a lot of the a lot of Greeks uh, came back from the war, and they they didn't want to stay in their small towns and be soda jerks and make candy with their dads. They wanted to, um, you know, go to college, and they did, and they became teachers and professionals. And uh, at the same time, then, and I lived through this. I was in high school when the interstate system came through uh, and totally bypassed these small towns and downtowns. Our downtown in Tuscola absolutely died. And the all of the business went out to the highway. Uh, and I'm sorry, which is why, yeah, kind of my dad retired. Well, we all left town and went to college. So we, I didn't want to do this. Are you kidding me? I used to sit on the end of this soda fountain that you see behind me and pray that I could get out of Tuscola, Illinois. I would do anything to get out. So the irony of my life is not only am I back in the Midwest, but I am back on the corner of Main and Sale Street in um, Tuscola, Illinois. So, so there was all of that. The big box stores came along. Um, McDonald's came along and took away from my grandfather's hamburgers. You know, just so much happened in a very short time. And then, you know, this helped the demise of downtowns and particularly uh, downtown confectionaries and soda fountains. Yeah. So 
Okay. Which doesn't talk about your chicken bone candy, but I'll look that up. All right. Any other question about the, what's the dove story? That's a good, that's a modern story. And I, um, that's miss. Yeah. That's a, I didn't do a lot of research into that, but that's a pretty common story. You can go to the Chicago papers and look up, but this is, I think started in the forties or fifties, which is not the time period I was looking at at all. I kind of stopped after 1930. So he, he, uh, in Chicago came up with the ice cream sandwich dipped in chocolate and that's the dove bar. So there you go. And they are Greek, but yeah. But, um, and, and I went to that, but when my best friend uh, graduated from college, she had heard about that place. And we were, yeah. you know, at the tail end of that built before what got sold to the idea and the concept got sold to what was it, craft or whomever. Yeah, they sold uh, out. They, yeah. They, yeah, but they certainly sold out in a way that they're remembered forever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but they were Greeks who came. They were Greeks who came later to to America. So yeah, my time period is like eighteen eighty to nineteen thirty. But by the way, the question was: Did you did, were any were these uh, any of these companies making Greek confections, or was it there are making no Americanized candy? Yes, uh, Americanized candy. Greek confections are not chocolate per se. You know, we all know uh, baklava and kuribiades and kularakia and yeah, dates. Um, those are those are confections that go back to ancient Greece. Uh, the use of phyllo dough to make confections, rice pudding. I love rice pudding. Um, we don't do that. We're not a bakery. We're a confectionery. And so, did they make this candy in Greece? No. This is an American phenomenon. Yeah. No Turkish delight or anything like that? No, we, I mean, we make nougat, which is kind of a Turkish delight, um, but it's not, it's not a Turkish delight per se. Yeah. I see Lucy Long has a question. Why don't you just unmute yourself, Lucy, and ask? Hi, hi. <laughs> so, I, I was just wondering, you know, because it's it's actually very, very common to um, you know, to, to have Lebanese sweet shops in the Toledo and the Detroit area. It's supposed to be a tradition from Lebanon, I've been told. Um, you know, so I was just wondering, you know, if any of the great candy makers were actually working with the Lebanese. Makers, especially the the other thing that's uh, that's interesting in this area is a lot of a lot of the restaurants you know that are Middle Eastern would actually call themselves Greek. Right. By the way, Lucy's from Ohio. Yes. Okay, I know um, there are there are some, um, and I'm going to look for this Greeks in Ohio. Uh, there's like Daffins. Does that ring a bell or Garants? Um, those are Greek confectioners in uh, Northeast Ohio, but I'm not sure. I, I don't know specifically if anybody's working with Lebanese um, immigrants. I think the ones that I know about are just um, 
just Greek only. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's so much overlap, I have to say, with confections. Yeah. And uh, did any of these candy stores that you researched make spoon sweets? Um, I'm some did, but not a lot. Um, I will say I have two lovely uh, Greek ladies near Duluth, Minnesota, and they they sometimes do that. But I will say that um, regionally, you know, there will be specialties, but they will copy those like pralines, you know, in the South, they'll make pralines. Um, it depends on like in Ohio, you know, they'll make Buckeyes. We don't make Buckeyes where we are. So it depends on, on the region. Uh, but spoon candy is not a huge seller. I'll just say that uh, because of the... Um, the shelf life is pretty slow. It's, you know, it's pretty, um, I don't know. We don't use preservatives in our candy. So our shelf life is about six weeks at the max, which isn't very much. Spoon, spoon candy is pretty, um, the turnaround time is pretty quick. So there was an inquiry. Do you have any family members training to carry on the store when you decide to retire? No. And, and I, if there's anyone out there who would love to uh, learn the candy business, please let us know. Yeah. And I got to share this with you. Um, the women in Duluth and they are third generation. So they're granddaughters of the, the can their the Greek version is Cana Lake. They called themselves Cane Lake, but anyway, both of us are looking for that next generation to come in because the succession planning is, is tough. It is hard work. It is, you know, my sister and I lately, because of COVID, uh, we are working seven days a week. Um, we have since March because I can't hire all my employees back. Um, so we're, we're not only making the candy and things, but we're out in front uh, selling it and packaging it. So, it is, it is a lot of labor. And um, if there, yeah, if there's anybody else. Just as there, it is, uh, there's a, a, cup, a candy company, I think I mentioned in my email earlier, called RGW in Atlanta. And uh, that's okay. That's fine. I, I know them. They're, uh, it's a, it's a, they're, they're Jewish, probably other ethnicities. They have a 2,000 acre farm and they do many different things. And one of them is a candy business since the 1940s. Anyway, the patriarch died a few years ago and practically on his deathbed, the family was still getting information about how to make some of the candies. He kept it to himself, kept it to himself. And now it's like a desperate, you know, a, a difficult situation. And now, now he's beginning to transfer the information. And there's a couple of things that they had to kind of like figure out on their own because it just, the information was not available. Uh, now somebody was asking what is spoon candy? I, well, why, don't some, you, why don't you talk about that? Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm familiar with it, but I'm not extensively familiar with it. Maybe you could you could talk. I about actually it. don't know, but David Sutton, is that your answer with the fruits and the vegetables preserved in sugar? 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, all kinds of uh, anything from carrots and tomatoes to quince and uh, orange peel and very sweet. And you see it now in, in sweet shops all over Greece. It's, it's very nostalgic, oh. I think. Oh. See, what we do, we buy sugared fruit and then I dip it in chocolate. So, yeah. It's difficult to be everything. Yeah, and I and I'd say too the shelf life on that is is short. Yeah, it because it uh, the sugar will crystallize quickly. You know, depending on the temperature. In the winter, it's great. You know, Christmas, it's great. Uh, summer, not so much. By the way, earlier there was a discussion about the chicken bone. Um, right. And somebody put in the chat, they said, as a boy living in Milwaukee, I enjoyed a candy bar named Chicken Dinner, maybe a renaming of Chicken Bone. They said the reference was probably to luxury. At the time, Chicken Dinner was a Sunday afternoon indulgence for many Americans, not the fast food it is today. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> I'm going to explore maybe. that. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. Um, my husband would like me to share a story with you about Mr. Krasakis, um, about what I, you know, he's in the background, so he's coaching me. Mr. Krasakis, um, was a, he was in his eighties and my sister and I, uh, this was like two or three weeks before we opened and, you know, we kind of, kind of were just trying to figure out what we were doing. So we had Mr. Rigby, you know, my mother was there trying to help us. My brother had sent the recipes and actually my brother had worked with my dad. So my sister had never really made candy. We were the women, you know, I was out in front, I packaged it. So, you know, here we are trying to be the, the producers, the manufacturers. So anyway, we're in the candy room and one day and this, there was a knock on the door and Mr. Chrysagas uh, was there and he said, hello, I'm, I'm Mr. Krasagas and I knew your grandfather and your parents. And he said, I hear you girls are trying to reopen your grandfather's store. Do you need some help? <laughs> so we pull him in. And um, so my sister's first batch of caramel took her four hours to make, which was just a disaster. So anyway, Mr. Krasagas, um took over at the kettle and he made what he called hot and fast caramel. It took him 45 minutes to make 30 pounds of caramel. It's great. And he didn't use a thermometer. He just knew when it was done. And actually, instead of dipping uh, the paddle into uh, taking the caramel and putting it in ice water to check the, see if it was done, he stuck his hand in the kettle and this is hot, you know, it's 200 some degrees. And he said, oh, it's, you know, it's ready. And, and he was right. It was, it was ready. So he came back to, and his wife came one time and she said, you know, he, he is ill. He has a aneurysm and, you know, he could die anytime. And we thought, oh, well, okay, not a good thing. But anyway, he was so happy. And she said he was so happy. And, and um long ago so it was we were, we were still him so it was you know there we were 
those are the great. And he didn't care if we was great. And uh, he said it was about time we did that. So any other questions? Uh, somebody tuned in late, but I have a feeling. Oh, somebody tuned in late, but I have a feeling the question. Oh, it's bad. Okay, sorry. So uh, somebody came in late and said, why did Greek immigrants, as opposed to other immigrants, start 20th century candy businesses? If you think you effectively answered that at the beginning, you could just rewind. But if there's a subtlety to that, please, please let us know. Um, I, I think that they, they tried a lot of things uh, in the cities in Chicago, you know, and they ended up in Chicago uh, near Hull House. Uh, they there was a huge Greek community at, at Hall House. And um, and they lived in that neighborhood, you know, which is, you all know, is Greek town now. But a lot of things pushed them into the candy business. It was, it was easy to do. They could uh, do it anywhere. They could do it at, 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 in a kitchen. They could rent space. They could share rented space. They even could buy candy uh, from other, com- you know, jobbers, if you will, and get out there in their carts and sell it. Uh, and then as they learned to make it, it became um, a way for them to be independent. It was a way to um, have their own business and they would share their expenses and they got together and formed professional associations and it became their niche uh, more so than any other immigrant group. And there were so many of them. At the same time, as I mentioned, uh, the soda fountains came into uh, the forefront and became much more uh, sophisticated. And they also became much more affordable. So a person could even rent space and buy soda fountain equipment and set up a soda fountain, throw some candy in there, start a little food. uh, And, you know, and bing, bang, you've got a, you've got a business going. And that kind of then exploded as, as I mentioned, there were thousands of Greek candy stores in Chicago and this model, this business model then went across the country uh, and into uh, small towns. The railroad certainly helped propel them to different places would make the ease of purchasing um, the ingredients to make candy and ice cream uh, so much more easy and affordable. So it became, that's what they did. You know, it just, that's the niche they fell into and they were very successful at it. Any more questions? Thoughts, comments? Well, and this was, no, go ahead. (laughs) I was just joking. My sister always says, any comments, questions, or prayer requests? Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, I know. I, I do want to say, uh, I want to thank all of you who are supporting your local uh, restaurants, particularly during this uh, time. Uh, I, I have a restaurant as well. I, you know, we make candy, but we also serve food because, you know, we don't have enough to do. But during the last eight months, it has been a horrendous time for restaurants um, and up where you are particularly. We have been a little more fortunate to be open, but uh, I, 
I do thank all of you for supporting your restaurants with takeout and, and however you're doing it, because there are millions of restaurant and food people out of work. And we thank you for your support. So I just want to say that. Meanwhile, a few more comments. <laughs> uh, one was, oh, right, right. Uh, and I don't know, is Scharfenberger Greek? I don't think so. No. And that's more of an artisanal chocolate. And it's a more of a modern story outside of your time range from what you discussed. Yeah. Uh, but did you want to comment a little bit? Somebody was talking about the forerunner of the Greek-American restaurants. Was that any relationship to the, the candy or it was just another well, yeah, branch a of lot productivity? Of, a, lot of, yeah, a lot of Greek confectioners then morphed into restaurants. Um, that was kind of a natural progression. And, um, you know, if you can't have a good day selling candy, then you can have a good day selling food. So originally, the Greeks would start out, particularly in urban areas, uh, making food for factory workers. You know, they'd have food carts, and some of them still do. Then they, you know, they'd make also food for their compatriots in their neighborhood. So they'd make Greek food. But then um, there's a great food historian, uh, immigration historian, Donna Gavaccia. And she said, you know, then the Greeks, the Italians, you know, they learned to Americanize their food. So the Greeks then said, okay, well, maybe they don't like, you know, lamb, but I'll make a, I'll make hamburger out of ground beef, you know, cause that's what the Americans quote unquote, like, so they kind of uh, Americanized their food. And again, let's look at soda fountains with hamburgers and French fries and right, the typical hangout place for teenagers, uh, milkshakes, you know, they, they just did whatever they needed to do to serve the public. Um, my grandfather did the same thing. We do the same thing. Yeah, sometimes we make Greek food, but. Not a lot because we don't, we're the only Greeks in town still. Yeah. <laughs> so where, where do you, where do you, I, I'm, I'm presuming, but where do you, do you go to a Greek temple or? There is a Greek church in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, I am a member. So I haven't been since we opened the store because we're open on Sundays, but the priest understands. Uh, so, you know, I work on Sunday, but I support the church as always. And, um, yeah. It's okay. a, yeah. It's a university of Illinois kind of congregation as well. They have a lot of students who go there. And I think you probably recall the first time I talked to you, I said, are you Greek Greek or are you Macedonian? No, Greek. I'm Greek Greek. No, I'm, my grandfather was from Peloponnese. You know, he's from Greece. But my mother was not Greek, so I'm only half Greek. Right, because somebody was asking about Cincinnati chili, but I think that's where we go more to the Macedonia, don't we? Somebody could correct me. That's fine. I don't mind. Um, that's definitely, that's definitely Macedonia. I have an audience here. Uh, oh, they were, oh, okay. They were something else. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, if anybody wants, uh, by the way, Amy, you're, uh, I, you, you need to un, un just make your comment because I can't begin to pronounce these things accurately. Uh, I think we're about done. Yes? No? Oh, hey, Lucy, how are you? There you go. That was the, that was me. I was responding to the question about Cincinnati chili. 
and I think we accidentally lost Anne, but perhaps we're done. Uh, and you're going to be talking next month for, uh, or for, or are you going to be talking to um, oh, Wisconsin uh, culinary historians? Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor. Oh, that's right. You know what? I get so many emails. After a while, it becomes a blur. But I'm, I'm sure they have. They'll, they'll look forward to it. And I hope you're going to come sometime. Lucy did some research uh, during COVID on, I would say, happiness and unhappiness related to food and life in general. <laughs> well, comfort food. Finding finding comfort and discomfort through food ways during COVID. So, and it was partly a response. You know, all the social media, all the food media started sending out recipes for comfort food. And, um, you know, and, and people were responding to that. And so I set up an oral history project. And we interviewed over 60 people internationally. And we have an exhibit online. And, and it's, still, it's still ongoing. So if anyone wants to contribute, you know, it's, it's still there. So COVID is anyway, I was I contributed, but I also have to say I documented a lot of the food that I made, especially when we really couldn't go anywhere. We're leaving the house seemed to be a frightening prospect. And a lot mm -hmm. of it was documenting the substitutes I made because I couldn't just run to the store and buy something. <laughs> and I rallied other people because I lived as an expat for many years in another country. And so I got used to the, it's not going to work. You're not going to get this ingredient. You're going to have to figure out something else. And that's all I did. And after a while, people, <laughs> it got to be goofy. It was like, I said, somebody was confronting with a recipe and they wanted to make and they go, well, what would Catherine do? And it's like, oh, come on, you, you kill, you're silly. Oh, and I'm glad you like my mushroom shirt. So, uh, Anne, I see you came back. You kind of disappeared. Um, and we want to say goodbye and thank you and all that good stuff. Oh, uh, Lucy, could you put into the, um, into the chat your website on the comfort food study you're doing? If not, if you don't have time, I, I, will, I will put it into the Culinary Historian's Facebook page. You can grab it from there. Hi, can you hear me now? Oh, yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, I wanted to say thank you. Um, I did want to share that we have noticed uh, folks coming in, and we're calling it the COVID comfort candy. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've noticed a very much an uptick in candy sales during, during the time. So I'm with you on the whole, what do we eat while we're stressed out? Yeah. Stressed anyway, out, can't go anywhere. It's a cheap form yeah. of entertainment. Thank, I want to thank everybody for great questions. I'm going to look into the chicken bones, Andy. Uh, and, and, I'll and, send you, and I'll send you a copy of the chat. So you, whatever we missed, you got an idea and I could try to contact those people. Yes, I'd love to. Send my email out if anybody has stories or whatever. Uh, please email me. I'm happy to keep the conversation going. Yeah. Great. Thank this you. was an honor, and it was, and you know, yeah. and it must be a thrill that you that you recreated the family business. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> Come visit me. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. That's a, that's a guaranteed. Well, thank okay. you again. And uh, everybody else, we'll see you a few weeks from now, the 28th. That's the Saturday after Thanksgiving, because where are you going to go anywhere, right? You're 
can't have too many guests. You can't do much of anything else. So come on that Saturday and we will talk to Ann Willen from the UK, which is the oh. beauty of Zoom. I mean, this, you know, our friend here today, Ann, you know, she's what, 275 miles from here at the moment? Not a big deal. She jumps on and now she can go and have dinner or whatever she plans to do. I love Zoom. I don't know how we're going to work this out afterwards, but I, I love it. Okay, Doc. Anything else? I think we're good. Thanks, everybody, and have a good evening. Thank you. What's left? Everybody.